Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Anne-Marie Koyster in the History Department, and as always, I'm joined by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer McNabb. She is at the University of Northern Iowa. She is just finishing up a great courses on sex, love, and courtship, which she'll be recording in a few weeks. It will be out later. Um, So she's going to talk to us about those kinds of topics, including a little uh, dramatic sort of retelling of the Mary and Elizabeth story. So um, stay tuned. Jen McNabb, you're here to talk to us about your latest in the great courses. And this is Courtship and Marriage. Is that the official title? The official title is Sex, Love, and Marriage in Medieval and Early Modern Europe. So the funny thing about that was that I came up with that trio thinking just variations on a theme. You know, I'm sort of saying the same thing three times. And then when I started the project, I realized with both excitement and horror. Oh, dear. That those are three incredibly different things uh, in medieval and early modern Europe. And occasionally they collided. Right. Physically, intellectually, and many other ways, but they really needed to be teased out as separate concepts. So that was that was really fascinating work. I really put myself into a position to try to be rigorous in interrogating what those things meant, mm-hmm. um, particularly the love business, because. There's such a dialogue among the intellectuals of the the two periods about love as a divine concept Mm. and love as a profane concept, love as a physical concept. So really interesting to try to tease those different things out and the changing nature of all of those elements loves great arc mm-hmm. over the medieval and early modern centuries and the same with the sex um, at least in terms of how it was regulated accepted not accepted how it determined personal worth value mm-hmm. in a community um, and then the marriage piece So, yeah, really, really interesting to do change over time. So I essentially took the concepts from the emergence of Christian hegemony right up to the French Revolution. Wow. So, yeah, uh, dizzying, if you will. And I I kept rewriting my course outline thinking, no, I need to talk more about this. Mm -hmm. I somehow wedged this in and lots of great anecdotes and I, I had a, a blast uh, yeah, and learning about my life's work. <laughs> nice. That's great. How many lectures will you end up? I mean, how many lectures did you end up writing and how many then will you record when you record these in May? So 10, this is a, a 10 course series like the witchcraft series before it. And it was a real challenge to think about what was going to go in and what was not going to make the cut. Uh, And so I have a file that's full of tag ends. I have just submitted the final installments yesterday for editorial review. And I have talked to my great courses handler to say, I am going to take a sweep through everything and make sure that I'm not leaving something out that's vital that I've just been so down particular rabbit holes. I'm stepping back now and looking at the forest um, instead of just the trees. So we'll see how that worked, um, how how I did when I go back to some of the really early lectures. And I tried to make sure that it felt human. Um, Early on, there's so much talk from elites that we have. Uh, 
right? The theologians just tearing it up. Um, what is marriage? It's such a failure, so full of sin and error, but at least it acts as a nice prison for human sexuality. Um, you know, it's, it's such a bad thing, but we can contain it. Um, and so those debates, I think, are really fascinating uh -huh. to hear the theologians talking to one another across the centuries. But you do run the risk of prioritizing certain voices, um, especially those voices of people who are not directly engaged in the activities uh, on which they're commenting. Um, they're laying down the law for everybody else, but you know, then they're standing casually aloof, and sometimes not so casually, um, to pass judgment uh, on others. So I, I really did have to work through my processes to make sure that it felt warm and human, uh, because these are the most intimate of human relationships that are being covered in sometimes very clinical and dogmatic ways. Mm. So I, I kept trying to shoehorn the people in um, whenever I could. And the course, I think, becomes much more warm and human and earthy uh, as we move forward in time when the lives of real people are just better documented. Um, the early Middle Ages is, is a challenge um, from the documentary standpoint, the record standpoint, but then things get um, much more robust moving forward. So. Right. So related to what you, you just mentioned, I was going to ask what percentage of the commentary is from people who are actually in love and married? Differs by time. Um, it, it's fascinating, too, that in addition to the theologians who managed to get control, it's a very long process. And I think that's something that I try to explore in the course. How does the church get the monopoly? on controlling marriage and legislating marriage and right. then arbitrating when serving as arbiters when disputes emerged. We might think that that's very natural. Well, of course, marriage is a sacrament. Well, how did it get there? Mm -hmm. Because that was a process that took several centuries. And it was one of these developmental arcs of the medieval church designed to, and I, I don't say this with a negative connotation, but to intrude into the lives of, of lay people, to try to make religion a lens, their faith a lens through which they viewed all of these other aspects of living. Mm -hmm. So it's fun to watch the theologians, but then there's always a pushback against that in popular culture, medieval style. So I do talk about um, the, the troubadours, mm. their tradition and courtly love and the fablio, the body fablio, um, which, you know, even some of the works of Chaucer fit mm. into that category. And that's a very different kind of literary exploration of many of the same sentiments. And so you see those points of tension between the way things are supposed to be and these commentaries that are, of course, themselves fictional and idealized. The troubadours, you know, that's a very idealized perspective. But there are elements of truth involved in all of this. I really enjoy digging into, this is <laughs> going to sound so cerebral and, and nerdy um, in a way I hope is endearing. I really liked getting into the fo formation of canon law. Okay. <laughs> right? Fascinating. Because the canons were developed in response to particular problems of lay people. Uh -huh. And that's the part that sometimes gets left off. We look at the rules. We look at the way that the popes weighed in or the Episcopal authorities sort of resolve these problems and they create these things, the canons that fit into canon law. But behind every one of these things is a fascinating story. Do you have an example? I, I do. Um, how is the rating? Uh, I think PG thirteen. Is it? Is it gonna, are you going to go R on us, or maybe we'll just give the um, sort of you know for those of you who are sensitive, um, Jen might now say something that could be 
potentially R-rated. How about that? Sure. That sounds that sounds lovely. Um, and I will try to keep things in in sort of broad terms. But here's a story, for example, questions about incompatibility. So there's a very interesting story about a man named William who was married to a woman with whom he was not physically compatible. They didn't, they just weren't a match. And they decided with the approval of the church that the proper thing to do was to separate. They had engaged in the bonds of holy matrimony, and that was an indissoluble bit of business during the medieval period. But there was also a recognition that if this was a marriage that could not be consummated, it couldn't be a marriage that was perfected, right? So the diagnosis was, you two are going to have to split up, and the proper course of action is for the wife to enter into a convent. Oh. You know, how could she take up another spouse when there was clearly this physical issue? So the best course of action was just to send her to the convent. Well, people being people. (laughs) She decided that that wasn't the best course of action for her. Right. She found another husband and they were a match. Oh, Well, then dear William, who had taken another wife, emerged from the mists to say, do we have to maybe have another conversation, like a follow-up? Because now it appears that my my first wife is maybe in a status where um, we are now compatible physically, okay? So the bishop gets involved right? This is crazy stuff, right? But more than human. So the bishop gets involved writing this wonderful note to the Pope to say, um, I could use some instruction here. (laughs) What exactly is the best course of action? Our wife number one of William clearly broke protocol by not going into the convent, but now we've got this sort of moral quandary, Who's supposed to be with whom? And the papal decree is, well, you know, should be the original partners back together. But then what happens to the second spouses? So there are some really complex issues that canon law is trying to deal with. And sometimes the canons can feel a little clinical. Although with these stories behind them, we realize that these are real people who had made choices sometimes with the guidance of the church and sometimes sort of flouting its, um, uh, its, its advice. Um, but those are the kind of stories that I like to tell because it does remind people that the law was designed all laws in the past, while they seem very declarative, they were designed to solve problems, Mm -hmm right? Law seems that it's just telling people what to do. But in fact, it's designed to address some kind of perceived difficulty, whether that's a personal difficulty or a societal issue, as is the case with many of the laws about premarital sexual activity or extramarital sexual activity. Um, You know, that wasn't just about these people committed adultery. We should have a law about that, but a recognition that this is a problem um, that many people find themselves getting into. So I will bookmark things there. Um, But Carrie, to come back to your original question, you know, we have these theological debates. Mm -hmm. We've got these romanticized expressions of human relationships. And then whenever I can find individual information, and it usually does come through the law, when someone broke protocol and was called to answer for it, that's when you get those individual stories. And whenever I could seed the lectures with those kind of pieces, I certainly did. There is an imbalance, especially in the early centuries of elites versus non-elites. As always, the lives of the elites are better documented 
but they got up to all kinds of fascinating um, activities. And so I chart some of the <laughs> marital difficulties of really famous individuals as best I can, because they make for some nice, rich tales that, yes, are not exactly ordinary, given the wealth and status and power of the people involved. But I think you can catch glimpses of some of the same conundrums that other people we're facing. What do I do when I had to marry for duty, but I actually want this other person, right? I really like this other person. <laughs> so, or I can't stand the person that duty drove me to. So I do a little bit of um, Henry and Eleanor, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II. Um, and of course, she was married to the King of France before that with some um, difficulties in terms of procreation. So, you know, the, the rich and famous, they've got problems, too. That's right. <laughs> and I try to deal with them as the course gets closer to um, the end. Then I get to dig into my own research and so I look at courtship and marriage in the 16th and 17th century ecclesiastical courts. And I have hundreds and hundreds of cases of people who are complaining about their marriages, not sure whether they are married or not. You'd think that would be something that would be fairly self-evident, but no, because for much of the period that my course covers, marriage was kind of a process rather than a singular event that was controlled by the church, there's this really interesting set of negotiations in the, in the sort of central Middle Ages about what marriage should be. Is marriage about consummation or is marriage about the exchange of consent? Hmm. Freely undertaking hmm. this marital relationship with another partner. Does that have to be followed by consummation or where exactly do we define marriage along the way? And the church um, in the, the persons of a couple of high powered popes, one of the Pope Alexanders and then Pope Innocent III, rock star Pope, super Pope. Um, these two decided that consent mattered more than anything else. And part of the reason for that is going back to the Holy Family, right? Mm -hmm. If Mary and Joseph needed to have physical intimacy to be fully married, then Mary was a single mother. Uh, oops, you know, like that doesn't create the right kind of uh, message to send to the people. So they put the emphasis on consent but as soon as you do that, it opens up the door for potential he said, she said scenarios, right. right? A public event is very easy to document. People are watching. It either happened or it didn't happen. But by putting the emphasis on consent, that's consent over an ale mm. at the public house. Mm -hmm. That's consent out on the heath at midnight. That's consent in the buttery of your uncle's house with maybe your aunt watching in. That's from a real case, because um, who doesn't love butteries? Uh, so as soon as you take things into a more private exchange of consent and you take things into that realm, then you open the possibility for disputed interpretations. Uh-huh. Now, the church then very cleverly said, we'll talk about that. Like, you can bring those concerns to us. Okay. Um, come to our hastily assembled, uh, but now booming, ecclesiastical courts, um, and we'll give you some judgments. Okay. So really a complex set of mechanisms that took centuries to form, um, but really put an indelible stamp on the way that marriage works and the way that we think about it. It did make those sort of transitions rather than ever being stable. And I think that's a real takeaway lesson from my course. I think sometimes it's easy 
to look at the commentary of pundits and moralists today who claim Christian marriage is the most venerable of institutions and it was fixed and unchanging for so long. No, it was an enterprise constantly under construction, constantly evolving. And I don't say that in a way of trying to devalue Christian marriage. As I argue, I just wrote some of the last lines of my course um, a, a couple of days ago. And what I took away was the incredible flexibility of marriage means that it's still relevant. Mm -hmm. Anything that was too rigid would have broken under the stress of political change, religious and economic changes, social conventions and mores. If it were too unbending, it would have been abandoned for something else. Mm -hmm. And so marriage's great sort of guiding principle of flexibility is why it still matters in today's world. So that is one of those real take-home lessons of the course is the evolution mm -hmm. of marriage to meet various needs of populations. And that includes some religious um, changes as well. And so I do focus on the Reformation as a time of tremendous change, the desacramentalization of marriage by the Protestants is, I think, ultimately a major turning point in the way that marriage was understood. I, I think in a number of ways uh, as an identity for individuals that wasn't a prison, that wasn't a jail, that wasn't the second place status for people who couldn't hack celibacy, which was the message really being put forward during the Middle Ages that celibacy was the preferred estate, but humans being sad and sinful um, just couldn't take it. And so marriage was a nice second place runner up for sin. Um, the, the messages on marriage were always mixed because marriage is also invoked to talk about the relationship of Christ and the church. Well, that's not second status, right? That's really important. But human marriage could never measure up to that definition. So there were all of these competing definitions that I think many of the Protestant reformers seized on to suggest alternate interpretations. And of course, the Protestants are the ones who allow for divorce with the prospect of remarriage. Mm -hmm. That is an ideological game changer in situ had not very much impact. Like, I think there's this anxiety that you can feel in some of the texts of the day um, from the proponents of the old faith saying there is just going to be a tidal wave, right? Like, oh, Pandora's box about to be opened. Marriage is now meaningless. Divorce rates were unbelievably low. Mm -hmm. Just because you might have wanted a divorce doesn't mean you actually had the means to pursue it or would get judgment in your favor. And there was no such thing as a no-fault divorce in that time period. There was always someone who shouldered the blame. So there was an innocent party and a guilty party, and only the innocent party had the remarriage option. Oh, I know that. It's not very perfectly understood about this particular moment, it looks like, wow, what a pivot point, divorce, mm -hmm. remarriage, the idea that marriage is not a permanent state, but it's less of a game changer in that moment than originally appears until you start thinking about some of the logical follow-throughs that play out over time. Mm -hmm. And that's where things get super fascinating because what begins to enter in is the concept that's always been lurking in the background of real physical compatibility, mm -hmm. emotional 
you know, some kind of emotional um, um, level of closeness, satisfaction, comfort um, that drives people to to join together. Um, Love was really entering into the equation. And I see it in my court cases. It's fascinating. I, I just did a quick word search a few days ago. I have a thousand pages worth of transcribed court documents from the 16th and 17th century. I call it my master file. And I did a word search in my master file for how many times love turns up. Like how often were these average people coming to court and invoking the L word? Uh And it's a lot. They talked about loving people in their heart or not loving people in their heart. Like I was married as a child to this person because my parents and his parents wanted the best for the two of us. So I was three and he was eight and they decided that we should get together, but I could never love him in my heart. Like that is something that someone would put forward once they'd reached the age of maturity to try to make a case to the court. This union should not be considered binding and valid. It was made for me and it's not something that I want. And that in that kind of case, say of a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, right. once they reach the a, a certain age, it was it was not just that this was an arrangement, it's that that was the consent that had been given and this was official. So it, it, great questions. Um, the, let's talk first about the ages of consent. I, I don't know whether this has ever come up in our in our bookish conversations before, but I'm about to blow your mind. So the age of consent for girls was 12. Oh. The age of consent for boys was 14. They take longer to mature. Even back right. then, they wow. recognized that boys needed a few more years to ripen. Right. Um, so you would get married in these child marriage schemes. And I, I think it's important to recognize that these were not designed to be manipulative mm-hmm. or super controlling. This was a parental attempt at real affection. How do we take care of our family? Um, parents died young. Yeah. And what happens if they weren't around to offer guidance? Now, that idea is something that gets left in the dust as time moves forward. There's much more emphasis, as I'm mentioning, on consent freely given. Child marriage doesn't allow consent. So, once the parties reached the canonical ages of consent, 12 and 14, then things get really interesting. When they're three and eight, what can you tell? Um, They might've even been raised together in one household or another to see if they could develop, this is a a great term from the the, um, records, to develop a liking for one another. And there is a liking. Um, And really cute stories of them playing together as children and, you know, frolicking about and they seemed affectionate. Well, sure, they're kids. Um, But once they reach the canonical ages of consent, there needs to be some kind of expression that they're willing to adopt the consent that's sort of been given for them. They start being watched very carefully. How are they behaving with one another? Do they seem to be affectionate? Do they seem to be in agreement? Now, this makes it sound as though these teenagers have considerable agency that they could just say, yeah, I don't like the look of them. And the parent would say, okay, so noted, let's cut our losses and try again. (laughs) What I see in my records is like the tip of the iceberg of these kinds of arrangements where the, the disliking was so pronounced that the individual just wouldn't let it go. Mm -hmm. It would have been very difficult for a young person to express a lack of consent in the wake of family, continued family support for a relationship. Do you imagine having to go to your mother and father and saying, I understand what you did. I'm not on board with it. 
-hmm. You're okay with that, right? No, no, no. And in fact, I've got a lot of cases of parents threatening. I'm going to cut you off, right? You fall into line or you're going to be turned out of this household. And then good luck fending for yourself. Threats of physical violence, right? I will bring you to compliance through beating you. Um, Now, if the young person could find a supporter because they need to get to court, court requires money, right? Justice was not free in this time period. So you had to have a defender. If you're a 15-year-old girl who ends up in the consistory court that I study, it's because someone is standing behind you Mm. who's got some kind of investment in helping you out. That could be an emotional investment. It could be an uncle who says, this is is bogus. Um, Her father is dead. She doesn't have any ability to contest this relationship. So I'm going to get in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So someone is footing the bill. I think a lot of young people probably just went with the flow. Mm-hmm. I like them well enough, you know, the, it's a household. Um, this is sort of what's expected of us. This makes my family happy. I, I like the looks of them okay. Um, I could stand to have uh, meals with this person and share a bed with this person for a lifetime, you know. Ah. I could do better. I could do worse. You know, I think a lot of people were looking for, I I don't want to be too modern about this statement in suggesting that this is a a necessary sort of um, separation of past and present. But I think there was an expectation that marriages were entered into for a whole host of pragmatic reasons And then affection was something that could develop Mm -hmm. over time. You didn't necessarily have to have love at the start for affection to be an ingredient as the marriage wore on. One of the things that I think changes over the long arc of the period my course covers is that very issue. I think I want love up front. Mm-hmm. Instead of hoping that it's going to emerge, this becomes the romantic kind of ideal, mm-hmm. right? Is that um, I want to have that kind of commitment from the start instead of imagining that it can develop over time as we forge a life together and raise a family together. Um, let's try to bring that I think it is always idealized more than actualized. Um, my, <laughs> I was uh, telling um, Professor Koistra that one of the things I wanted to talk about in this podcast, and I completely lost the plot at the 30 minute mark. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk about a couple of queens yeah. and air courtships and marriage. And that's Queen Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor of England and her Scottish cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart. And Mary is famous for a string of marriages and Elizabeth for the fact that she had none. Right. And Mary Stewart is one of these um, individuals who uh, on paper, um, what a pedigree, um, ruling a kingdom from, you know, um, sort of the first week of her birth. Her father dies um, early after her appearance and she becomes the Queen of Scotland, um, just days old. And her second marriage, she married young, her husband died young. Um, that's Francois. Um, uh, so she was raised in France after a few years in Scotland and then uh, a need to go and relocate to the French court um, because the English were getting rampagey along the Scottish border. And Mary comes home as a young woman and there's this immediate question, who will she marry? Mm. There is no real acknowledgement that a woman should rule a kingdom solo. That's just not a thing that everybody is really comfortable with. And so there's a lot of talk. Okay, who's the queen going to marry? And Mary says, I like the look of that guy. <laughs> that guy right there. And she married um, one uh, another steward a few years younger than she was. She was just besotted with him. She was infatuated 
and then learned very quickly that all that glitters is not gold. Oh. Um, he was not a great guy um, for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, he wouldn't stop having um, extramarital relationships that eventually um, endowed him with syphilis. Oh, good um, and he was he was quite cruel to her um, and and some of her. Um, intimates, he had her private Italian secretary um, sort of murdered in front of her while she was pregnant. Oh, whoa. So there's a place where love is up front and boy, you know, that doesn't seem to be an exemplar. Um, and so that marriage goes south. She was then implicated in the murder plot to take him out Oh boy. He was um, receiving treatment for his syphilis and the house he was staying in blew up. Oh, it didn't kill him. He managed oh. to get out a window um, with one of his servants and then was promptly strangled in the garden. Uh, and so Mary eventually married the man who was the chief conspirator of killing her former husband. So Mary, Queen of Scots, has this relationship and the unpopularity of that third marriage with the Earl of Bothwell essentially led to her flight from England. If you know anything about Mary, Queen of Scots, it's probably that she spent this huge period in captivity. Um, She lived in England for 19 years as a thorn of her cousin's side because here is a a queen displaced. What do you do with her? And she's the wrong religion, right? Mary was was raised in the old faith and maintained an allegiance to it. But England had become Protestant at that time period. So here is a Protestant queen, Elizabeth, sort of at her wit's end. What do I do with this Catholic who is constantly a potential rallying point for my subjects who are um, adherents of the old faith. They can always decide, you know what, we like the Catholic one better. Let's topple Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. And that was actually the subject of a whole host of plots mm-hmm. that Mary couldn't resist putting your fingers in, dabbling in. And they cost her her life at the end, her inability to just stop plotting <laughs> did cost her her life. Elizabeth eventually reluctantly decided to sign an execution for Mary's death. And you might say, what's the reluctance all about? Like, why not take her out? Well, let's think about it from an ideological perspective and from a political perspective, Mary was an anointed queen. Yeah. If you execute an anointed queen, as in another anointed queen, you put out the message that there's really nothing special about that status. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth couldn't have that. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth wanted to maintain the integrity of the brand, mm-hmm. right? That monarchs were special mm-hmm. and that you were not supposed to execute them for any reason. And Elizabeth made a great show and you'll see it in the movie depictions of signing the execution warrant and then having an attack of conscience and saying, oh, my God, recall it. Uh-huh. Bring it back. I changed my mind. Uh-huh. And Elizabeth's counselors very famously had dispatched a, a fast writer <laughs> out of town. <laughs> like, we got to get him on the move because they knew Elizabeth would do this. Yeah. Elizabeth was pretty famous for taking these positions and then retracting. I mean, it's, it's her way of having the best of both worlds, right? I'm taking the hard line, but then a little mercy or what, what have it. And she threw rather a fit when they said, sorry, your majesty. Um, You know, it's, it's the warrant had actually already been executed. And so is the queen. (laughs) And then Elizabeth went into penitential mode, you know, oh my goodness. uh, Know that this was against my will. Um, I changed my mind. She had a lot of mea culpa-ing to do. Of course she wouldn't have mea culpa. That's too Latin and too Catholic. Um, So she was, you know, sorry about that folks. And I no way mean to endorse that um, we should get rid of queens. (laughs) Because I am one. So I want to just loop back to this idea that Mary's whole life is defined 
by her matrimonial adventures and misadventures. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth's is famously defined. Elizabeth is such a rock star that there are a number of things associated with her, right? The age of Shakespeare and the English Renaissance. That's part of an Elizabethan legacy. The other element that everybody remembers is the Spanish Armada, right? right? Elizabeth, who is in charge when the invincible Armada is bearing down and somehow lovely England is spared because of its righteousness and because God likes Protestants. That's the (laughs) <laughs> that the English likes like to put out. Um, they were saved by a holy wind uh-huh. that blew uh, up storms in the channel and, and destroyed the Spanish fleet. So Elizabeth does have a lot of flame, uh, flame, uh, fame, and deservedly so. But the thing I think everybody remembers about her is the virginity, right? Yeah. Elizabeth is this great virgin queen, the virgin icon. So her life is defined by her celibacy, mm-hmm. her refusal to pick a marriage partner. And there's a reason that that's part of the legacy, surely. But what I think people forget is how much of Elizabeth's reign was dominated by the question of the queen's marriage. There's this moment very early on where she's telling off parliament and she famously says, I, I'm already married and mm-hmm. shows her coronation ring. I'm already married to this kingdom. Mm-hmm. And you all are my children. I mean, it's such a great line. Yeah. We don't know that she actually said it, but it sure sounds great. Oh, I hope um, so. so she puts parliament in its place when all of these guys are trying to tell her, you know, well, the queen must marry. And she trots out the I'm already married. There will be no more talk of it. And it's easy when you think of her as the virgin queen to imagine, well, there's the matter settled. Mm-hmm. No. Into the early 1580s, there are matrimonial negotiations. Elizabeth is the most eligible bachelorette in early modern Europe, right? She is the source of constant talk of marriage. Should she marry an ally? Does England need a Protestant friend? Should she marry to Spain? to France. She gets very close with a brother of the French king in the late 1570s. She has several rounds of matrimonial negotiations with French brothers, um, with royal brothers, um, to see which one might might stick. Um, And she gets quite close to the Duke of Anjou. She goes so far as to accept a ring from this guy, which is an incredibly big deal in this time period. The symbolism of the ring had real meaning. And it set off this sort of um, really negative backlash from important members of Elizabeth's state and the people in London to say, hey, 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 whoa, Um, you know, we've always imagined that the queen should marry, but not France not Catholic France. And so Elizabeth then says, and one always wonders with her, was this part of the strategy in the, in the first place, says, well, I can't face, if you won't let me do this, I guess I can't do this. And she breaks things off with Francois. Um, she writes some love poetry. It sounds like she was pretty attached to this guy. She was certainly attached to his marriage broker. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a guy who was always hanging around the English court. She had a little affectionate nickname for him. She had nicknames for all of her favorites. So um, his name was Sinier. So she called him her little monkey. Oh. Um, that's a sign that the queen likes you when you get one of these really weird nicknames. Um, and she seemed pretty broken up about it. Um, Francois died a few years later, and she wrote a letter to his mother saying, you know, we've lost something so precious in all of this. Fascinating, right? For the famous virgin to have this kind of attachment to a guy. Um, But I always wonder, Elizabeth was so savvy 
so smart about public opinion and maintaining the goodwill of her people for incredibly pragmatic purposes. She is a single woman running a state Mm -hmm. and she was so good at understanding what her people would accept. And Mm -hmm. so I've always wondered about that matrimonial negotiation, 1579, 1581-ish. Like, was she calculating that the whole time? That Mm -hmm. sure, she'd accept the ring, she'd get so far as to get to the place where she knew people would reject it and then she would have to reluctantly Mm -hmm. step back. I think Elizabeth understood that should she take a husband, she would not be regnant, right? Her husband would rule for her. If she were ever to have married for affection, it was Robert Dudley, um, the the real love of her life. Um, Early in her reign, um, there there was a real frisson of love there. The problem was he was already married. Um, And then his wife died very mysteriously and the gossip began. And if there was anything Elizabeth was really sensitive to, it was gossip, right? She grew up in an age of rumor and innuendo, all of her father's matrimonial adventures and misadventures. Although I think it's safer to say that the women had the misadventures rather than the King. He just kept having adventures. Uh, And so Elizabeth was very sensitive to gossip. And when the rumor mill started about Dudley's wife, Elizabeth realized I can't marry him. Doesn't matter how much, I want to. Um, Elizabeth got smallpox early in her reign, and it it nearly cost her her life. And of course, her counselors were in an absolute state of panic. Here's this young woman who is possibly dying. Who's going to rule this country? All of the children of Henry VIII had been exhausted by that point. Um, There's nobody left. There's Elizabeth. And I'm going to stop talking because I know how long this is going on. But um, (laughs) on her potential deathbed, she's interrogated by her counselors. Who? Who's going to do this? And she says, Dudley can do it. And they're all like, "Uh, (laughs) nope, (laughs) please recover. Please recover now. Um, And uh, of course she did. Um, But that's, I think, a real sign of how persistent the affection was. This was, you know, after he had clearly been kind of relegated as a choice. And he maintained such an important part of her life and affections all the way to his death. He predeceased her um, and she had his last letter marked on the outside of the letter his last letter. She is rumored to write how, how lovely and romantic she is rumored to have whispered his name as she was shaking off this mortal coil. Um, so I think just a, a really fascinating reminder that these characters of the past had these interior lives. And I always like to talk about that with students, right? Because in textbooks, people seem so linear. They seem so one dimensional. And there's a lot of of stuff to unpack there. Yeah. Zipping it it now. I know. Sorry. Zip it, Jen. Come on. No, you were fantastic. Everybody's out there going, oh my gosh, we can't wait to hear the lectures, right? So this is, (laughs) everybody's going to be like, no, we want more. We want more. Exactly. It's a nice teaser. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, there you go. That was a 45 minute teaser. <laughs> Sorry about that. Jen, before we go, commercial. that's the longest commercial I've ever recorded. <laughs> that's great. Before we go, I definitely want to know what is on your nightstand. Oh, boy. Well, I will say I am in that stage of pandemic reading. <laughs> I was so cerebral when I was here last. I was reading all of this early modern literature and fiction. Uh, I am currently reading a book by Michael Connolly. Oh, good. (laughs) Called The Scarecrow. It's the second of a trilogy about an investigative reporter um, who uncovers sort of the worst of humanity. Why am I reading this now that I'm <laughs> now that I'm verbalizing um, the text? But he is, I think, um, just about to be on the 
case of a serial killer. All right. Um, I'm also reading the the Hamilton cast book. Oh. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, lovely coffee table book with um, beautiful pictures from Hamilton and the stories behind the songs and the history behind the songs. So um, that's the part where I'm, I'm trying to be intellectual instead of reading these thrillers. That's that's lovely. I will just volunteer that I am reading a detective story as well. It's part of this ongoing Cork O'Connor mystery series. I'm reading Copper River by William Kent Kruger. So I'm I'm yeah, I'm with the yes. There's a big series. He publishes a book every year. I don't know how these people do it, but good for him and good for me because I've got plenty to read. Carrie, what are you reading? What's on your mind? I just finished for my just funsies, uh, another Terry Pratchett book. So fantasy detective fiction. I just finished Guards, Guards, which is all about, um, well, they're investigating and trying to dethrone a dragon who has taken over as king of this very sad city. So hilarious. And I have now, um, uh, Jen, you'll be happy to know, purchased the book that you recommended last time you were here. So I'm sort of slowly making my way through Agnes Boker's cat. Um, Yeah. Which is fascinating. It is fascinating. So listeners pick up your David Cressy, Agnes Boker's cat, 16 travesties and and transgressions in um, Tudor and Stuart England, um, little vignettes of these fascinating slices of early modern life. Um, And they almost read. Cressy is interesting in that book. It it reads almost as fiction, right? It's so smooth and engaging. And he says that in the opening. He's like, you know, I'm not going to be super historian guy where I stop and try to contextualize everything and talk about theory and other historians. I'm just going to let the records tell these stories. So a a fun read, intellectually stimulating, but also pretty digestible. And it's right. right. It's, it's great as sort of actually keeping on your nightstand because you can read it and it's fascinating and then go to bed and dream about travesties in Tudor England. At cats and the like. Um, and you, you have to, uh, all of you out there, um, you've got to get this book to figure out what, what the deal is with Agnes Boker's cat. Have you gotten that far, Carrie? I have. Okay, you know the secret. Well, mum's the word. Yes. <laughs> the word. Well, Dr. McNabb, a pleasure as always talking to you today. And uh, to our listeners, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bookish at Bethel.